0: Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast that is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps you want to take to get there. And I'm your host, Darren Johnson. Welcome to episode 95. Now, if you are new to the show, welcome to the room. And for many of you, you've been here since the beginning, a special welcome also to you. For everyone, make sure you're subscribing to the podcast. This podcast is growing rapidly all because of you. So thank you. Our guest in episode 95, another great one lined up. She is Jennifer Say. Many of you know Jennifer. If you've been following the news, you certainly have. Jennifer is an American author, filmmaker, business executive and retired gymnast. She was the 1986 USA Gymnastics National Champion and a seven time member of the U.S. Women's National Team. You know, I admire Jennifer a lot. She has been such an advocate for children and girls and women. In fact, her first memoir called Chalked Up was released in 2008 and detailed the coaching cruelty inflicted on children in the sport of gymnastics. And she also produced a 2020 Emmy award-winning documentary film called Athlete A which connected the crimes of Larry Nassar to systemic abuses in the Olympic movement. There's a whole lot more to Jennifer's story. She began working at Levi Strauss & Company in 1999 as a marketing assistant, and she rose to chief marketing officer and then to brand president. Brand president of Levi Strauss, one of the most iconic brands, iconic companies in the world. And then in January 2022, she was asked to leave the company because of her vocal opposition to the extended closure Of San Francisco's public schools during the COVID pandemic. In fact, rejected a million-dollar severance package so that she could be free to tell her story. So what can you expect to learn from Jennifer? Well, you're going to learn leadership lessons from someone who is in the upper echelon of corporate America at one of the most iconic companies in the world. And you're going to get some great insight, leadership insight, what it means to climb the corporate ladder and the unique challenges that women face in the workplace. And we've all heard about cancel culture. We've lived through it. Now we're going to put a face on it, Jennifer Say. And finally, we have a really interesting discussion about free speech in America. How there is such pressure to silence yourself, self-censorship, and there is such a demand for conformity, which has implications for free speech. We don't agree on everything, nor do we need to. It was just so much fun to have a really good discussion. Episode 95 is ready. Here, everyone, is Jennifer Say. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. It's really good having you here.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Okay, Jennifer. I honestly, uh, I don't know where to begin with part of your background. You've done so much in your life and your career. Interesting story. I think I'm going to start first with your journey to Levi's. What was life like before Levi's? What were you up to?
1: Uh, Well, I had an unusual childhood. I was an elite gymnast. Um, And for anyone that knows anything or doesn't know anything about gymnastics, you start training very intensely, very young. Um, So I started the sport when I was about six, right around the time Nadia Comaneci won the Olympics in 1976. And little girls across the country flocked to gyms. I think it's important to note this was just a couple years after Title IX. So it wasn't like it is now. where Girls can play any sport. You know, there just weren't that many options. You know, we could go to ballet class, which I did. we could go to gymnastics. That was kind of it. <laughs> you know, really? there was no soccer. And I played on the boys little league team for a little bit. But like, you didn't have girls sports everywhere like you do now. But I fell in love with gymnastics, fell in love with Nadia, loved the sport. And by the time I was 10, I made my first national team. Um, and I started, you know, I was training five, six, eight hours a day 10 in the summers um and i loved it until it got kind of crazy and i didn't anymore i went to a gym when i turned 14 that had a lot of girls on national teams and the training just sort of went from being fun and kind of you know the coach i had between 10 and 13 very invested in a child's development you know and how sport would contribute to raising healthy young women the coaches that i encountered when i was 14 they did not care about any of that they cared about um winning meets uh getting girls in the national team on the olympic team and it was just super abusive and cruel emotionally physically um there were actually um sexual abusers the national team coach at the time who i traveled around the world with um was a sexual abuser and he ended up being banned oh. from the sport many years later. So it was a very difficult environment. And um I really struggled. I had a lot of injuries. I had an eating disorder. We were Bullied about our weight all the time. Weight in our weight was announced on the loudspeaker. there's a long way of saying that I came out of my adolescence in not great shape, as you might imagine. Um, but I had gotten into Stanford. I went off to college. You know, for me, going to college felt like retirement because I had put in, you know, a life, a career already, essentially, and I was just exhausted and really beaten down. Um, and I didn't know who I was as a student or who I wanted to be as an adult. So you know, my sort of years between 18 and 25 were pretty difficult because I was flailing a little bit and recovering from my years in the gym. Um, But in my mid 20s after graduating, I started to work at an advertising agency. I wanted a job, I was very proud. It was sort of in the midst of a recession and I was not about to ask anyone for help, at least all my parents. And I took the job reluctantly. Um, But while I was there, I worked on the Levi's account. I didn't start there, I started on Taco Bell which was not good for the I'll waistline, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. um, but I didn't really, you know, I was very reluctant. I didn't see myself working in business. I'd always been sort of, that was not a dream for me. I did not have ambition in that regard. I thought I wanted to make movies and write books, but I didn't have a ton of confidence. Um, but I did know I wanted to be independent. So okay. I took the job, I was good at it and we were off to the races, you know, I just kept going. I just yeah. kept going, and eventually, in 1999, I found my myself at Levi's.
0: Well, that was the, the question I had. Was, was your goal from the very beginning to be a, a business professional, an executive no. at a? Was that part of the plan, or how did no. that?
1: No, I didn't. I, not only was it not part of the plan, I actively did not want it. Really. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want it, but I wanted to be independent, and I also learned about myself because when I first graduated from college, I was doing sort of odd jobs like everybody does. I was coaching gymnastics, which I did not like. Um, I was working as like a production assistant <clears throat> on independent films. I, I, I was contracting as you know, production assistant on commercials. I hated the instability; it made me so anxious.
0: Right.
1: And so I knew I needed to. I needed some financial stability. I like needed, you know, as this young person living kind of a crazy life, but I wanted health insurance and a paycheck. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I was trying to balance these two things. Like I didn't want to do it. I didn't really like it. I didn't have aspirations. You know, some young women, there's all sorts of studies that show in the fashion industry, which is my industry or ended up being, women come in at the ground level with greater ambitions than the young men that come in. But then somewhere along the way it flips because It's so much more difficult for women to progress in their careers in these companies, and many times they get frustrated and leave at very high numbers. By the time they're sort of director level, that wasn't me. I did not have high (laughs) ambition. I didn't want to do it. In (laughs) fact, the night I took a job at an advertising agency, I said to my roommates, of which I had many, "I better not be doing this in five years." Really? I just I I didn't (laughs) have an interest in business. You know, my dad was a pediatrician. I didn't have relatives that worked in business, it was not an aspiration for me,
0: Mm -hmm. which maybe is
1: why it was easier to walk away later in life. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe. I mean, so 1999 is here. Levi Strauss came calling. What was there about Levi's that caught your attention and that attracted you to this company? And the follow-up is 23 years. You know yeah. how rare it is? I know you do. How rare it is for, for anyone to stay with a company for 23 years, Jennifer. What was there about Levi's?
1: It was. It's very unusual in this day and age. It didn't used to be. I mean, I think two things. One, I had worked on the Levi's account at the advertising agency. And, you know, when I worked on it in the mid-90s, this was at the sort of height of their appeal and their powers and their marketing um, I mean, they were, you know, the ads are famous. People still remember them, at least if you're Gen X, um, it was the height of their revenue. You know, it was, I think 1997, they were over 7 billion. That's still the biggest they've ever been. It was really the height of Levi's popularity and it was driven in large part by great marketing. So that was fun and exciting, but I have to say as a child, I'd worn Levi's. I mean, I'd worn Levi's my whole life.
0: Same I stri-
1: my my, my first, exactly. I mean, we're not, it's not that unusual um, but well, I think for our generation, I don't know if we're the same generation. I don't want to make you as old as me. If you're not, um, no, I've, but- I've got, by the
0: way, I checked, I've got you by about three years. Up.
1: Oh. Okay. so we're the We're both Gen X. Yes. Um, my first pair of Levi's were baby blue cords and you know, the mid seventies, um, <laughs> grew up on Levi's advertising in 1984, the Olympics that I paid much attention to, though did not, you know, compete in Levi's dressed the entire us national team across every sport these velour sweatsuits so i mean levi's was like a part of my childhood it was a brand that i loved i wore them all through college i was a big vintage shopper wore a secondhand 501 so to get a chance to work at this company that I don't I still don't know how I would ever work somewhere if I didn't actually love the product. I don't think I could do it. So, I love the product, I love the brand, I'd worn it forever. You know, what I loved about the Levi's culture was it was very reflective of how you actually think of the brand. It, it you did not not everybody dressed the same, you know, there was like there was diversity of viewpoint of style of everything. And it's ironic, you know, how it all ended for me, but I loved that. Whereas I worked at the gap and everybody looked the same. Everybody was in the same <laughs> outfit and the same twin set and the same car. Yeah. And the same. I was like, this is not, this is not for me.
0: Yeah. Well, Levi's uh, you're taking me back. I can still remember. Uh, yeah. I think it was five Oh one button fly jeans. Still my favorite jeans. Why do I still remember that now? What 40 years later for crying out loud.
1: It's my favorite too. I wear them all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So 1999, that when you first joined Levi's, it had to be a pretty progressive place, right? Pretty friendly for women or was that not the case in
1: 1999? Not really. I mean, I didn't really think about it because I didn't have high expectations.
0: That's right. Um, Back to that again.
1: I mean, it's the nineties, right? Yeah. so no, it wasn't. And I would say, you know, Levi's more than perhaps some other fashion companies. Like the Gap mm-hmm. had a lot of women in leadership when I worked okay. there. In fact, the CEO at Banana Republic, which is the brand that I worked for, was led. It was, it was a woman. There were okay. a lot more women in leadership at the Gap. At Levi's, it was a very sort of salesperson driven company, which is unusual um, in apparel, but more usually design or merchandise led, merchant led. So it had... Was, and I say salesperson, sales guy, for the most part, it had that kind of vibe. It wasn't particularly yeah. um, friendly or hospitable to women, but I didn't really have any different expectation. I mean, that that's terrible to say, but I mm-hmm. didn't. Um, and so I just ch- kept trying to make it better. And as I moved up the ladder, I had the opportunity to shape the culture of my group, at least and mm-hmm. and change it. But you know, a few I, I, I recount a few examples in the book, but um in my book, Levi's Unbutton, but like i I got um pregnant with my first child about um, a year into my tenure at Levi's. So I you see. know, oh no, no. I had my first child, sorry, about a year into my tenure. First year. And I, you know, when I came back from maternity leave, which I think was all in six weeks, that's all you got. Yes, right. And I was um, still nursing and, you know, you, I was pumping and there was no facility. I sat in a closet with like a shower curtain over it with no locked door. It, you know, there weren't, that, that's just an example. Of what it was yes. like. You know, it was not uncommon to be at sales meetings and just have to bat off the advances of drunken sales guys. And that was just part of the course. It was right. just how it was.
0: I'm a sales guy. Uh, I grew up a sales oh, sorry. guy with it. You know, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it wasn't me. No, I grew, up, I grew up a sales guy within the pharmaceutical industry. And actually, I'm giving you this face because I'm thinking back to the national sales meetings back in the 90s and yeah, yeah exactly. it's like it was there was awful it was awful so, um, anyway yeah
1: exactly and i remember hiding in my room my hotel oh. room at one sales meeting and my boss who was a woman said you have to come down you have to show your face like it's just no. what you have to do And I said, I don't want to. And I went down very briefly and everybody was drunk and all the guys were like trying to dirty dance with the assistants. (laughs) It's like, I don't want to do this. Somebody uh, told me recently, a colleague, a former colleague from Levi's who's slightly older than me. We overlapped maybe a year or two. She told me she had to go through training in the nineties that was, um, you know, around harassment, like how do you report sexual harassment, that kind of thing. And they were told, she was the only woman in the training. It was all men. The rule was two knees and a no. Do you want me to explain that?
0: I, I'm, I'm going to need you to because I don't want to make a mistake on, on what I think it is.
1: You can't say anything or report it until he's put his hand on your knee twice and you've said no once.
0: No, you're kidding me. I, no, that's not where I was going to go. Really?
1: Yeah, that <laughs> okay, was the well, actual well. guidance.
0: Welcome to 2023. All right. Yeah. So, you
1: know, and I, I don't mean to single Levi's out because I don't think yeah. Levi's was particularly different than anywhere else, you know, and it's certainly in very male dominated fields. I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like in you know, finance or, or something like that, but it was that's not crazy. particularly hospitable and it did get much better over time. And I think that's a yeah. testament to the culture broadly, but also Levi's.
0: Well, I think you can be really proud of what you did at Levi's. Just reading the book, by the way, Levi's Unbuttoned, fantastic book. But you mentioned a couple of times you were part of these changes that were made over time in your career. And here's a couple of things I learned about Levi's DNA, which I had no idea about. Since Levi's inception in 1853, Levi Strauss donated a portion of his first profits to a local orphanage. In World War II, the company hired black sewing machine operators and laborers. 1960s desegregated factory in blackstone virginia um which wow uh 1992 what they offered same sex partner benefits i mean a very what a company and along the way um something something shifted and we're going to get into that but bef- yeah. but does that how, how does that is that part of that dna that was there up until Pick the year 2017, 2018. Did you feel it all the way?
1: Absolutely. I felt it all the way. I loved it. You know, I I started out and I entered because I loved the product and I loved the brand that was sort of put out in the world. But when I entered the company and we told these stories, I started to tell them like they were my own, you know, and presence of the family, because at the time it was family owned still. Uh, the Haas family, you know, Bob Haas had been a former CEO, he walked the halls, he knew everyone's name, he asked about your children. Um, And he'd been a a, a big part of furthering those policies, um, not just around employee equality, but offering a better standard of work to supply chain partners. I mean, I was really proud, you know, Levi's initiated what, what we called at the time, and the industry calls terms of engagement. And this is when Um, American companies started outsourcing more of their production overseas, how do you ensure ethical practices and treatment of these workers in these third-party facilities? So Levi's initiated what's called these terms of engagement, and they brought on the entire industry. And yes, we all know there are still lots of issues um, in terms of uh, supply chain practices, but Levi's have been typically a leader in that space, which I also really, really loved. But Everything they did, it was about extending more quality to their own employees. Same sex partner benefits, um, integrated factories, you know. Wow. And, and sometimes the employees didn't like it. I mean, I wrote in, in the book, I think, um, there were sewing machine operators that quit when they were told the factories are integrated and you have to sit next to a black sewing machine operator. This is the 50s and 60s. Sure. Um, but Levi stuck to their guns and did it anyway because it was the right thing to do, um, and I was absolutely really proud of that. I mean, to offer same-sex partner benefits in 1992, 1992. first Fortune, first Fortune 500 company to do it. They were Fortune. I think they 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 go back and forth in in terms of being in the Fortune 500 at the time. They were. Um, no one had ever talked about marriage equality. Like this was not even a discussion on the table. It was incredibly progressive. Um, but it wasn't about shouting that to the world. It was about doing right by your employees. And I really, I did. I love that. And I was very proud of that.
0: Should be, should be.
1: And, and Levi's had been very sort of active in that space in terms of education, yep. um, you know, a large gay employee population and certainly had employees that suffered from from the disease. And, and you know, again, their, the orientation was very much about how do we help and protect our employees?
0: So, you were named chief marketing officer in 2013, and you were there for seven years as chief marketing officer. To be a chief marketing officer for a company like Levi's that large for that amount of time is unheard of. I think the tenure, Jennifer, I just read something, is what life lifespan is like, yeah, two years, 18 months, yeah. something like that. How in the world do, did you, uh, were you able to do that for seven years? And what are you most proud of looking back on it? That's incredible.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I think it was almost eight. In fact, I, um, it is a really long time, you know, two, two and a half years is like tops for folks. I think there's two ways to look at it. I think the first way, which is, you know, I I was good at, I was quite good at the job. And I was a key member of the leadership team that helped reinvent the brand, The, the brand and the business were near bankruptcy in 2011. Um, that's been much written about in Harvard Business Review articles. Like this storied 140-year-old brand was about to go under. Um, and so we really had to kind of reinvent, reimagine what the brand stood for that also included the product and, you know, bring new consumers along the way. There was so much wrong in, her, in terms of how the business had been run. Um, but marketing and, and, and the brand perception, were, it had become very dated and dusty. So all the things you and I think about it that we experience as Gen Xers, Generations after us, millennials, and then, you know, Gen Z's, that was not their perception. Their perception <laughs> was dusty cowboy, my dad's never changed the product. Like, so we had we had our work cut out for us, but you know, we got it, we got it done. And we, we built a plan and slowly and steadily, and then more quickly, because it started to accelerate, um, things got better and better. So the first way to look at it is I had the job so long because I was good at it. I do think that's true. The second way to look at it is I should have been promoted way earlier because I was good at it. And I wasn't because again, some of this sexism, I think creeps in. Um, And I think when you, when you look at, I mean, there's tons of studies that show, um, you know. Women get promoted after they've already proven they can do the job that they've been promoted into. Whereas men get promoted into their potential. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. speaking out of turn to say that that's a kind of well-studied fact. Yes. On average, women spend much longer in a particular role being successful than a man who gets promoted out of it. So there's good and bad, right? Like I was really good at it, but I actually had a lot of frustration along the way, and some of it I didn't write about because it's too inside baseball. Oh, um, you sort of. You know, get almost getting the promotion, being promised the promotion and then not getting it because it went to some guy. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. So now, yeah, if I look at that career path, that's so impressive. And you may have just answered part of this question, but if I were your executive coach, if I if I were your executive coach, I would say, Jennifer, you are right on track. Holy smokes, you're right on that. You're on the path to be the next CEO of Levi's. Was that what your belief was? Is that what was next for you? And then if so. Take us through the timeline. What what happened near the end?
1: You know, I never thought that that was on the docket for me. Really, um, I really didn't. I, you know, I think part of it is my reticence about this career path in general. But I will tell you, <laughs> as the CMO, when I really had the opportunity to make a difference and actually shape the culture more so inside the company, um, shape the future of the brand, and actually guarantee a future for the brand, then I started. 20 years into my career to start to think, Hey, maybe I could make a career.
0: <laughs> really?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause up until then I was just doing the work. I was never focused on, I'm going to, you know, I'm not like a vision board person. I wanted to do the work. And if I was enjoying the work that was sufficient, but at yeah. a certain point, when you're doing outstanding work, you have a team that's loyal and committed. You do start to go, wait a minute. Why am I not getting that promotion? I need to fight for this. I can't, I I thought at the beginning of my career, I'll keep my head down, I'll do good work and, you know, get promoted or not, but it's fine. Then everyone starts getting promoted around you and you realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm not in the game. I'm just doing good work, but you have to really advocate for yourself. And I also advocated for my people. You know, that was something, I I think think you asked, what's the part about the job you love the most? Well, getting to work on this storied brand and set us up for another hundred years of success. Yes, but I loved, my team. I loved giving people the opportunity to build careers that were meaningful and have them feel like they made a real contribution. I was a very committed coach. Um, I think that's the part that matters the most because that impacts people's lives.
0: Yes. And by the way, your book Levi's Unbuttoned, that's one of the parts that really leapt off the page for me that I, I mean, I, I respect you a lot in so many areas. And the way that you talked about your people and you made time to coach them and develop them, which you, you don't have to do that, Jennifer. I mean, for ex, when executives reach a certain level, some forget about the, that that people part, but it felt like the people part was front and center for you
1: when you get to a certain level and you have a team that's sizable enough, you know, as the Cmo, my team was gosh, I don't know, six seven hundred people around the world. Um, I can't do the work myself. First of all, I'm managing functions I've never done and don't know how to do. so you know how am I going to do that? but There's so much work happening in so many places around the world. Your job is to create the conditions where people feel a sense of accountability are able to make good decisions and the work just happens. Um, And you do that by setting a clear vision, right? And then getting the best people in the jobs in leadership positions so that they can get the best people in the jobs. I mean, I spent half my time coaching. It wasn't my job to make every decision. And I certainly was very clear that I was not going to be the one to come up with all the right answers. Yeah. Now, when I stepped in, the team was really broken in 2013. And so there was a lot more heavy lifting I did, you know, to sort of demonstrate what my expectations were. But I even said at the time I'm doing this now to demonstrate my expectations. You're doing it next, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're going to yeah. own the, the result of that. So um Yeah, I love that part of it, you know? And I love, like I said, the chance to lift this great brand out of the doldrums. That was pretty awesome, Um, but it did change. I think you started to get at this, you know, this had been a a company that had long taken pride in doing right by its workers and being a good corporate citizen in in the communities they operate in. And then sometime, and I was part of this, I'm not trying to disown it. I was a big part of it as the CMO. We started to say, hey, wait a minute, there's a trend thing happening here where companies talk about the good works that they do. Maybe we should do a little more of that. Maybe people would care. But we took great care in the beginning to one, not have it feel boastful, right? To, you know, have the humility that we think the brand has, but also to keep it broad and inclusive. We did a campaign um, you know, we've always said Levi's is about authentic self-expression. And we did a campaign in 2018 um, about voting. Yep. We, it was called Use Your Voice, Use Your Vote. We didn't say who to vote for. It's nonpartisan. It's, you know, if we've always advocated for being your authentic self and using your voice, using your vote is an important part of that. It didn't just run in the US either. It ran in India. It ran all over the world. Um, but it wasn't picking a team. It was about civic participation, which you could argue, why the hell would Levi's do that? But it was one of our more successful campaigns. Um, Mm -hmm. But then it just, the company really started to morph and I started to get really nervous and and say, wait a minute, I think we gotta- You felt it? We gotta take a little pause here because this is a broad reach, inclusive brand, probably 90% of men in America own a pair of Levi's. (laughs) We cannot just cater to you know, progressives in blue states and cities, even though those are our friends, that is not the that is not the um, makeup of this country, and we're going to start to alienate some of our fans that have loved us for a very long time.
0: Yeah. So, what was it that that caused you then to force that decision of of leaving Levi's? What was that? What was that fundamental issue?
1: Yeah, it's tied. To kind of what I was just saying, but the fundamental issue was for me, and I had been a left of left of center Democrat my entire life. You know, if anything, if we got into sort of jokey conversations at work about candidates and who you supported, I was always the like kooky one supporting the further left candidate, like oh, yeah. you know Bernie or Warren, and they'd be like, "Oh, that's bad for business." I'm like, "No, it's good." Um, but that it was fine because it was in the boundaries of, of acceptability in San Francisco. Uh, but in March of 2020, I was very opposed to the school closures and other restrictions on children. And I was outspoken about that. I, had, I have four children, all public school students. Um, and I, as a citizen, not as the CMO or the president, I became the president of Levi's later that year I spoke out about it on social media. I wrote op-eds. I went to school board meetings. I led rallies. And I was told repeatedly over the course of two years that I needed to stop doing that, Hmm. that that was Trumpy and right-wing and murderous and racist. Hmm. (laughs) And I kept saying, no, thank you. I'll keep going unless you're telling me I have to stop, in which case we have to have a different conversation. And then finally in January of 22, I was told that there wasn't a place for me in the company anymore. So that was the end of my close to 23-year tenure.
0: And I believe they called you a blocker, correct? In other words, you are a blocker and also because of your social media activity. Do I have those two, those are the two reasons they gave you? Yeah.
1: And what a blocker in sort of corporate terms is, that's why I couldn't keep. So basically they said, because of these public stances you have taken, that are so Mm. controversial and contradicting public health and a million other things, Trumpy. And because you've lost the trust of the employee population, which I also don't think was really true. I think there was a small vocal minority of employees. Um, You can now never be CEO because sometime during when I got promoted to brand president, that became an obvious next step. If I delivered performance, because at that point I was owning product and design and go to market and all these things. So when they took CEO off the table because of me being a reputational risk because of my basically COVID stance as it pertained to children, I could no longer hold my current job either as brand president because that made me a blocker. They needed somebody in the role as president that could become CEO. And since Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I had to leave. I mean, I'm not endorsing this perspective. I'm just explaining it.
0: what types of things were you posting things that were just over the top or what Just describe it for me?
1: Um, No, although you have to take yourself back to March, 2020. And there was no one, certainly not in San Francisco where I used to live. There was nobody questioning these policies. You know, if you were a good person, you stayed home to save lives and you didn't question the policy Right. Um, and that was throughout 2020. And I would argue most of 2021, at least if you lived in a liberal city and state, um, they, everybody in San Francisco thought everybody in Florida was dead. Um, you know, DeSantis had opened a school and so obviously all the teachers died and he's an evil tyrant That's that true. just You're is right. killing people. Yeah, And so You have to take yourself back in time that saying anything, even asking a question made you a heretic. Mm -hmm. And I asked questions very politely and diplomatically, which is, I think what you're getting at. I'm not a ranter. I'm not a yeller. I've never yelled at anyone at work in my entire life. You will know if I'm upset with performance, but I will be very direct um, and calm and kind and as much as you can be and that's the tone that i've always had on social media it's interesting you ask this because when i sat down to write the book in the summer of 22 i i went back all through my old tweets thinking i'm gonna find something that like i'm embarrassed by i'm gonna find something that i'm just like oh my god how could i have said that and i didn't find anything nothing i was very diplomatic
0: you were in fact if i may from your book I'm looking at a couple of tweets. And for example, here's one that you had the audacity to tweet. Um, I can't believe that bars in San Francisco are open, but my son can't go to high school. That was one tweet. (laughs) Another one was, um, yeah, respectful. We cannot understate the serious psychological harm that prolonged virtual school has on many children. We are seeing an epidemic of serious psychological illness that has reached a crisis point. And that was in quotes, so maybe you're quoting someone else. But then the question, how many more op-eds from doctors do we need? Question mark. It feels like a very thoughtful question, inviting debate, inviting discussion. But it sounds like it was things like that. Asking the question just was, uh, was too far.
1: Asking the question, challenging public health, unacceptable.
0: I'm dying to know, what was that moment like when you had to make the decision, taking a severance or not? What was yeah, that yeah. decision like for you?
1: Yeah, well, what I decided, so I was told by my boss, the CEO, that there wasn't a place for me <clears throat> going forward. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I sort of at that point expected, um, I had agreed, they said they needed to do a background check. Um, it was supposed to be a pre-CEO background check. They had to do it on me and my husband. But I, I I realized during that process that that was going to be the excuse to say that I had to leave, whatever it said. And I've never seen it. They, They didn't show it to me. Um, but you know, that I, I didn't know what I was going to do. He delivered the information. I, you know, nodded and I took my leave so that I could gather myself. It certainly is not where I thought my life would be. Um, after 23 years at the company in my fifties, I thought I would end my career there. Even if I never became CEO, I would be a successful brand president and I would walk away with my head held high. So I had to think about it. Um, but where I landed was. As alarmed as I was about COVID policy and as it, how it pertained to children in particular, but even more broadly, I was more alarmed at the demand for conformity um, and the censorship that had happened in the prior two, three years that continues. And we've seen it, you know, we see yeah. you know we've seen the reports of social media companies who were pressured by the government to censor and deplatform people. So that was what was really alarming to me. And I couldn't imagine silencing myself. You know, the whole two years when I got a call every few weeks saying, you gotta stop, I said, no. I said it politely, but I said, no, thank you. This is my right to say these things and to advocate for children. So to take the money that was on offer, which was about a million dollars, um, I would have had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. That just meant I couldn't talk about the terms of my departure. I was not going to do that. It just felt too urgent to me that we have to talk about this. We have to stop censoring each other. We have to have hard conversations. Because at the end of the day, if we had collectively talked about this, the potential harms done to the children, rather than demonizing anybody that challenged it, I am 100% sure the schools would have opened sooner. Hmm. That is why. It's required. You know, we cannot accept truth as government issued talking points. That's tyrannical, that's not a democracy. And and that is not what happened. And it was in the name of safety and public health, but you know, the reason free speech is the first amendment is it is the most critical to a free society, if you don't have it. And and that's in hard times, not just easy times. And so essentially, you know, I had started standing up for kids. But then as my advocacy continued, it was much as much about free speech and open debate as it was the children. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't going to give that up by silencing myself and taking the money. I decided... I don't know. Not too long after, so what I did in, instead of taking the money and signing the non-disclosure was I resigned and then published an op-ed, um, kind of exposing the story a bit.
0: Is that how you look at this? Then it, it, this is a free speech issue at its core, or is it something other? Do I have it right? If you had to crystallize it,
1: if the government had permitted these debates, then the companies wouldn't have been, you know, embarrassed to have me advocate for children in this way it's all connected i you know i'm not i'm not i'm not debating the law i understand uh, that the government uh cannot prohibit free speech although they have been
0: and that i didn't
1: work for the government i understand that i am talking though about respect for a culture of free speech and what that affords us not just in terms of the absolute freedoms but about the ability to talk and discuss and get to the right answers Um, and yeah, that is what it's about. And I think that we're living in an age of not just censorship, but it's self-censorship. And that's the, the, the harm and the damage from, you know, cancel culture is people yeah. self-censor themselves. And I think something like, you know, two-thirds of Americans feel they can't say what they really think. Well, that's a yeah. problem. Yeah, so is. we have manufactured consensus, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's what we experienced during COVID was a manufactured consensus.
0: Well I've heard you on different podcasts and I've read some of your work obviously and some interviews where you talked about this whole compliance and how the large majority of people complied did not ask questions and I'm paraphrasing when you said it was it's really not a United States thing but it's a human nature thing. Yeah. What 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 did you mean by that?
1: I think what I came to understand I mean I thought you know obviously what happened during COVID none of us thought we would experience in our lifetimes. You know, we went from moving freely and going about our business to um, sheltering in place and acting like that was a term we always used. I, I remember it right. was shelter in place and then it just all these new terms rolling off our tongue. Um, but it's sort of an unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. So I, you know, it felt so unprecedented and it was unprecedented, but what I realized as we went through it and it actually sort of made me feel better, believe it or not, is, <laughs> I just think most people and I think history bears this out most people would prefer to stand with the crowd and stand out and do you know what is right and to stand apart from their friends and their social circle and their family and risk um, reputational harm and losing their job and all of these things and there's studies that show this most people are you know obedient and will obey the commands of authority figures whether it's you know, the Milgram experiment or the Stanford prison experiment. And so I think it's it's true across geographies, across eras. And um, the reason it made me feel better is it was like, well, this is just a truism. This is just true. And some people have to stand up first and then eventually bring others along. Mm-hmm. Um, if you accept it as a reality, it feels, somehow, I don't know. It's just a truth. It's like less egregious. It's not something unique to this period in time or this moment mm-hmm. in history.
0: Yeah. No, when you said it that way, though, that, that did make me, I had the same reaction to kind of help me understand what we went through and are still going through. And I think a lot of us as a society, we're still processing the trauma <laughs> that we've all been through. But when I look back in world history and I'm not a historian, but when I look back at certain times in history when the population complied, and I, I would think yeah. to myself, how in the world did that happen?
1: How in exactly. the world?
0: I'm now, I now, for the first time in my life, ever since wearing 501 understand. jeans, I, yeah. I now understand, I caught a glimpse of how it happened.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I used to you know read about McCarthyism, obviously, before my time, and I thought, how did people do this to each other? People right. were blacklisted. They lost jobs. People snitched on their neighbors. You know, you read about what it was like in East Germany uh, before the wall came down. I would read, you know, family members reporting on each other to the government. I would think, oh, how could that happen? That could never happen here in America. Not true, because then we went through it. And I mean, in San Francisco, there were snitch lines set up. You could call the police if you saw someone going into your neighbor's house that you thought didn't live there. And people did it. My family and I had the police called on us for gathering in the park. So I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime, but you're totally right. You look across history and it's happened forever. I don't know what the numbers are on either side. You know, I tend Mm -hmm. to think it's, you know, 5% on either side. You've got 5% kind of willing to stand up and put themselves at risk. You have 5% who are enthusiastically turning in their neighbors. And then you have 90 in the middle that kind of just go along
0: right now we are, we're so divided as a, as a country, it is good versus evil. You're in a cult. No, you're in a cult. And I mean, and so it's, there's no parties. It's like this, everyone's picking their sides. Jennifer, how do we get back to respect and debate and discussion and the best idea wins? How do we do that?
1: That's such a big question. The only Way I can think to do it that we can each participate in that process as individuals if we care about that is to embody the behavior. You know, don't assume bad intentions from someone that disagrees with you, listen to understand. Um, Don't cut off friendships because somebody votes a certain way. Um, sit down and talk with your neighbors, debate issues respectfully. Um, if you do disagree with someone and you see that they're being attacked, defend their right to say it. it ask questions. Don't censor yourself. You know, it, it, it's, it's not without risk. I know that. But you have to do it because the alternative is so much worse. You have to do it. Um, You know, I used to use examples that were COVID-related that might seem dated now, but if you um, are a parent and the parent-teacher conferences are still not in person, which was true in 2022, just last year, Tell the school that you're not okay with that. You want to come in and talk to the teacher. You don't have to do it in a very public way and blow up your whole life like I did, but you have to challenge things that don't make sense. Um, And you have to have hard conversations with people and not go in with an open mind. You know, I've had my mind changed on all kinds of things. And I've also gone in with an open mind and strengthened my own position by understanding the other side. So I just, you know, I just had a little incident. I did a reading. Um, and a and a at a bookstore outside Chicago about a week and a half ago. And I had a little heckler, um, mm. like a a, 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 a troll. <laughs> it was like a Twitter troll, but like personified. And she just kept screaming names at me that I was a loser and a grifter and a liar. And I said, ma'am, I, I tried to be very respectful. I said, look, I, I know you don't like my view, but can you at least grant me? Can you at least be generous enough to... I might be wrong, but I'm my I I believe what I'm saying. Like I'm not this grifter and this liar in it to make a mm-hmm. buck. I mean, if anything, I've given up tons of money. Can you at yes. least um grant? Can you start from a more generous position of let me try to understand your perspective? I'm trying to understand yours. I think I understand it. I don't agree. But if we can't do that then I don't know. And the only way we do that is each person commits to doing it. So I just try to model that behavior and encourage others to do the same.
0: I think that's, that's great. And the challenge of don't self-censor yourself and also do it in a respectful way. Uh, We can still, you can still state your opinion in a candid way and still be kind and respectful and no hate and all that, you know? So, um, your Instagram page, I saw that, that post on Instagram about the fact you had that troll there in Illinois. I saw that, um, which I thought was unfortunate. And I wanted to know more about that, but it sounds like you're really good at conflict resolution.
1: You know, I have more friends now, friends I've made over the last few years um, through the COVID (laughs) dispensing that come from, you know, more different backgrounds than I've ever had. I'm not a religious person. Um, I have met a lot of people who are more religious than me, much more and hold very Mm -hmm. different views on a variety of topics. We talk about it respectfully. We agree to disagree and we move on and um, we work together on the things that we do agree on.
0: You know, uh, Jennifer, one of the things that we haven't talked about in the podcast is that you have a pattern of of doing things that, that you're more of an advocate for children. Uh, you are the author of Chalked Up in 2008, detailed the coaching cruelty inflicted on children in the sport of gymnastics. And then in 2020, you're an Emmy award-winning documentary film. You produced that called Athlete A, which connected the crimes of Larry Nassar to the broader abuses in the Olympic movement. And now, of course, well, you stood up for what was happening in the schools during during COVID. And um, and now, just most recently, uh, I was looking at your Instagram page. You were just speaking at the Independent Council on Women's Sports there in Denver. It seems like you have a consistent theme of trying to help uh, women and girls and kids, and but it feels like it's evolving. What what are you up to right now? And, and what's giving you a lot of focus is moving forward.
1: Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I spoke at the ICONS conference, and that really is about protecting women's sports and women's spaces and so I've now waded into probably the most controversial issue of our day and it's it's interesting even for somebody like me who's been um pretty outspoken on a lot of issues that was one I did not want to touch because it's so um it's so controversial um but I just at a certain point as a former athlete um a self-avowed feminist, which, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing anymore. I just felt, you know, Jen, you've got nothing to lose. You have a point of view on this from your own childhood experience. Um, Do it, do it in your way. You got, you got no job. You're not going to lose that. So yes. Um, And for me, that really is about protecting the opportunity uh, for little girls like me uh, to compete Fairly in sports Mm -hmm. and avail themselves of the educational opportunities that come from that. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the book that I wrote in 2008 was about my experience. It was a memoir. I did hope to connect with other young athletes or young women who came out of the sport and continued to suffer. It, there was terrible backlash at the time, you know, it was not OK to say the things I said. This is pre me, too. You weren't supposed to say it. You were supposed to uphold wow. the image of shiny, happy little pixies. And so it was pretty brutal for 10 years um, until everything changed in the sport with the conviction of Larry Nasser, the doctor doctor for Team USA, who went to prison for life for sexually assaulting hundreds of young athletes. Then all of a sudden everybody said, "Oh, she was right and we stood by her." They mm-hmm. forget their own complicity in the in the covering up and the touting of whatever the presupposed narrative is. People want to believe they're on the right side of the story, but I remember because I have the screenshots and I have all the yeah. <laughs> nasty nasty emails I got. Um but yeah, and so for me, you know, Children are the most vulnerable among us. They don't have a voice. They cannot vote. They try to please adults around them. And so it was just setting off alarm bells for me that kids were home alone, you know, shuttered away. And adults, you know, a lot of parents in San Francisco said, Oh, they're fine with it. They love it. And I'm like, I don't know. Mm. I think that they're really going to tell you they're going to try to please you. And it's it's not great for all kids. A lot of kids were home alone, taking care of very young siblings. They don't have wifi, they live in tiny apartments, they couldn't play outside. I mean, it goes on, you know, since so they get food, mental health support services in school, they're going without all those things. It seems so obvious to me that this was a disaster in the making. Um, and again, I guess my heart just can't, when it comes to children who, like I said, are the most vulnerable among us and will not, don't have the opportunity To advocate for themselves, really, Um, it's incumbent upon us as adults. And I think that's one of the most, frankly, disgusting things um, about COVID is we expected children to keep all of us safe by sacrificing their futures. And that is not the way the world is supposed to work. We keep them safe.
0: You know, and this whole self-censorship piece, one of my questions that I was going to ask you but I chose not to was, hey, Jennifer, was it worth it? would you do it again? Yeah. And I saw, I saw a video of you and you were answering that question from someone else. And it took me back because you were basically saying, well, of course I would, wouldn't you, if, if you don't stand up, you know, where are your principles? If you don't stand yeah. up, I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing, Jennifer. No, that's you,
1: correct. I, I feel that way. I mean, I, you know, I'm asked all the time, why was this the hill you were willing to die on? And I, that's what I say. Why weren't you, do you even have a hill? Do you have any principles or do you just care about sort of wrapping yourself in false virtue and standing with the group? And I think for most people, they don't, they think they do, but they don't. And that's a harsh thing for me to say, I realize, but I, I mean, what's most alarming to me right now that we're going through, and there's, you know, been all of this kind of exposure of the actual censorship that was happening by the government of anyone who push back on covid policies and, and other things but you know that in particular so many people are still saying well yeah they deserve to be censored that's what i'm most afraid of is that we don't actually collectively even value open debate and free speech in this country we don't think that that is a birthright in this country
0: can you feel it i think we all can we are definitely at a crossroads and I do think that the next 18 months, with the with um, yeah, oh joy, the presidential election coming up, I think it's really going to put a put a exclamation point on this crossroads, and with AI and a whole bunch of other things. But I think it's going to get really interesting, don't you think?
1: I do. I, I mean, I'm not particularly excited about the presidential election. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not particularly excited about either likely candidate and I, I do think look i think it's incumbent upon us as individuals to kind of stand up and embody these principles and you know yeah. defend our fellow citizen would, whether we agree with them or not but we need leaders we don't have leaders that bring us together at this point and, and neither of the leading candidates can do yeah. it um we need someone we need someone
0: well jennifer i'm looking at the clock i could i could spend another three hours with you i'm not because i can i promised it would not be that <laughs> So I'm going to end with just a couple last questions. What is the best way to follow you? You clearly are doing a lot of cool things with your time and talents. What's the best way to stay in touch with you?
1: Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter still, despite it being one of the main reasons I lost my job. So uh, <laughs> that's just my name, Jennifer Say. Um, and I also write a Substack. stack. Um, again, if you like subsect, just look for my name there. It's called Say Everything Now. And then the main thing you asked me, which I didn't answer that I'm doing right now is I'm in the process of making a second documentary film. Um, it is called Generation COVID. And it's about the the children. Um, how did they mm. fare? How are they faring still? So we've been following um, maybe 10 families, children and families across the country, as their stories unfold, and they kind of emerge from the wreckage of lost learning and isolation mm-hmm. and mental health impacts.
0: Well, as you're so steeped in this, what is the one thing that you is the biggest surprise from starting to do this work? Any big surprise for you? And when you're doing this work,
1: I wouldn't call it a surprise, but first of all, no child was spared from the harm. So the low income, low income children certainly suffered more and they had more difficult home circumstances, but even for Wealthier children, the isolation had an impact on everyone. For the kids that really, really suffered, the ones who've been able to pull themselves out of it and emerge quite strong, it's not just about the family structure. They all have a third party adult that's helped them, a coach or a mentor. And it just it does take a village in a sense, not to, you know, they 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 have some other, there's a system in place that helps them, you know, whether it's a coach in the sports or some mentor, you know, I, you know one of the families we've, we've followed in Greeley, Colorado, it's a immigrant family. No one in the family graduated from high school, let alone college. Wow. They need that third party advisor to kind of hold up a different possible future for them. And so I don't know what that means, but cutting kids off from that who relied on it was really quite catastrophic and devastating. Wow.
0: Well, I can't wait for that documentary. When will it be released?
1: Um, We're hoping to finish it up by the end of this year and then have it released next year. It's a tough one for distribution. It's still an issue that a lot of folks don't want to touch, but we'll see.
0: Okay, I'll be watching. Okay, Jennifer, this is the I Dare You podcast. At the end of every podcast, I ask my guests, what is your I Dare You challenge for all of us? This is going to be good. You would dare us to do what? What do you got?
1: Speak up. There's something in your mind right now that you sit amongst your friends or the fellow parents on the, you know, PTA and you think it's nuts and you want to ask a question and you want to challenge, but you don't do it for fear of being ostracized. You have to do it because I guarantee once you do it, somebody else is going to say, Hey, yeah, I've maybe been thinking about that.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea you challenge and it's something we can all step into and Jennifer, you've modeled this really well. Uh, I suspect you and I don't agree on everything, nor do we need to. But it was just fun to be able to talk this through, have a, learn more about your background. And again, that challenge of being part of the change is something we can all embrace. So thank you again for being part of the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, that was Jennifer Say. I hope you enjoyed getting to know her. What a story. What an interview talk about courageous leadership and someone who did risk it all, it forced me to think about for myself, am I standing apart or standing with the crowd? And whether you are, wherever you stand, on whatever issue you're talking about, left, right, middle, doesn't matter, but are you willing to stand up? When you think about the greatest threat to the United States, there's a lot of threats. It's not through military, but it's through our own people being divided against each other. And I think your challenge is a good one. Regardless of your political persuasion and how you view the world, are you silencing yourself? Self-censorship? I don't think that's the way we should go. I think that this time demands something else. This time demands different types of leadership, and every one of us is a leader. So let's step into that and take Jennifer's challenge. So now that you've listened to the episode, I would invite you to share this with friends and family who are important to you. And follow us on Instagram, at I Dare You Pod. That is the best way to connect with me. I'd love your feedback on this episode. But there you're going to find video snippets of this interview with Jennifer and a lot of other fantastic content you're going to enjoy. Thanks for listening, everybody. you got a lot of choices in what you're consuming in digital content, and you're here every week on I Dare You podcast, and I appreciate it. And now get ready for next week, episode 96, another great one. It all happens next week on I Dare You podcast. I'll see you there.